0: Listening to Affect Autism, where affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. This week, we have a returning guest, Dr. Ira Glavinsky, who is a clinical psychologist at the Glavinsky Center for the Family in West Bloomfield, Michigan. He is also a DIR expert training leader. That is the developmental individual differences relationship based or DIR floor time. Model of Dr. Stanley Greenspan, and we've spoken with you before, Dr. Levinsky. Welcome back.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Daria.
0: Last time we spoke about the development of regulation in children. We're going to continue the conversation today discussing how we focus on regulation. So What do care providers and parents do? And Dr. Glavinsky's focus, if you've listened to some of the podcasts we've had with him in the past, is that we tend to focus on behavior, which causes us to be more rigid in how we deal with situations. Because as Dr. Glavinsky says, when someone's having difficulty regulating themselves, it's their physiology that is the issue. It's not that they're misbehaving on purpose or not being cooperative. So uh, we want to spend more time supporting them rather than handling it as a problem. And the main key here is focusing on the relationship to remedy the situation, which is what we talk about all the time in floor time. So um, I would like to get you, Dr. Glavinsky, to tell us a little bit about um, This is something that was a presentation. You, you, uh, you presented this to the star Institute in Colorado and I was told about this presentation, how wonderful it was. So I'd like to have a discussion with you and, and if you can share with us what you shared with the audience there, that'd be wonderful.
1: Yeah. I I think, you know, even going back Daria to your introduction, um, what we tend to do is we tend to focus on children and getting children to regulate. And what we have to include in the the equation is the adults who are with the children in the moment, in the moment of time. Uh, I, I think to begin with, uh, regulation probably begins in utero, and the context from the very beginning is a kind of we context. Um, it's a, in utero, it's it's a mother-child, um, mother-developing-child context. When a baby is born from the earliest moments after birth, we're talking about a we rather than the child or the parent alone. And we talk about self regulation down the road, but self regulation really emerges from what goes on in co-regulatory experiences. Uh, Infants have a difficult time regulating themselves. Um, They have some capacities to regulate when an infant becomes overstimulated. For example, the infant may avert gaze, may close his or her eyes, may hiccup, or something, sneeze. Um, and so there, there are rudimentary ways that infants regulate. But what infants need is they need caregivers around them to develop the capacity for regulation. And I think what that means immediately is it's really dependent upon the adults who are with the infants in addition to the context to develop inner self-regulation. And so as we think about treatment, as we think about an intervention, I don't, I don't, f- or interventions, I don't think we can partial out the adults who are with the children. And I don't think that we can partial out the context. I think it all has to be considered. And so self-regulation develops really in a dynamic context.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point that I think we don't focus on enough. And um, before I go into that a little bit, I'd like to specify and have you define what you mean by regulation. So when you say for a baby to regulate, we're really talking about being calm, being alert. Do you want to um, elaborate on, on what we mean by being able to
1: regulate? Yeah, I, I think regulation is either when There's not enough going on internally and externally. We regulate by upregulation. We increase the amount of stimulation in order to activate the child into um, what we might call an optimal zone of arousal. When a child is dysregulated, um, overstimulated, over aroused, what we try to do is we try to lower that stimulation level into that same optimal zone of arousal, or some people call it a window of tolerance. Um, the the characteristic. Well, I, I think a main characteristic of what we mean by regulation is a person being in a state of what we would call alert inactivity. And what alert inactivity means is that we're attentive to our surroundings and we're able to take in stimulation, process stimulation, problem solve. Uh, there, are, there are some people, and it sounds paradoxical, but there are some people who regulate by being in a state of alert activity. And um, frequently, th- these kids get diagnosed with Um, ADD hyperactivity um, diagnoses. Um, If I can sort of go tangential for a moment, the number of years ago we did a research study, Um, we were looking at ADD and we were looking at ADD with... um, Can
0: we just specify what you mean by ADD, attention deficit disorder?
1: Attention deficit disorder. And we were using um, computer um, computer tasks to measure it, and, and we found three groups. Um, the first group of kids uh, looked like classic children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. If you looked at these kids, these kids were bouncing off the wall um, and very high activity. Very high inattention. Um, we found a second group that was, um, that the kids could be diagnosed as attention deficit without the hyperactivity, the inattentive. So these were the kids who were, uh, quiet, but internally and externally distracted, but they weren't very active. But then we found a group, and I think if most people looked at that group, they would say, these kids are obviously attention deficit disorder. And when we looked at the data, what we found was that their activity levels were extremely high, and their attention was exquisite. And unless they moved around, they were unable to attend. So, these were kids where the parents were telling them, "Turn off the television you can 't do your homework you know the and these kids couldn 't function very well without that stimulation to um, activate the movement. but they were very regulated kids; they just needed more activity in order to regulate, so I think we have to be careful um, when we talk about regulation uh, because it's a dimension rather than a category. And there are different levels of regulation, all staying in that zone of or window of tolerance. But for some kids we're going to have to increase, other kids we're going to have to decrease. For some parents, we're going to have to increase, other parents decrease. So
0: is this <clears throat> is this an example while I'm sitting here listening to you? I'm scratching my fingernails together. I'm not sitting still. I'm fidgeting.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. Um, some kids might need to rock back and forth. Like my son, when he sits in a chair, this is what he does. Exactly. <laughs> he can't sit still. And um, other kids, you know, have they introduced that bouncy ball to sort of balance, to sort of help keep children re- regulated in the classroom. Um Yeah. Different things: uh, biting nails, uh, twisting pencils. You know that thing in uh, when I was in university, all the kids used to do. Well, I can't do it yeah. anymore. But yeah. sit here in class and do this the whole time, right? Yeah. Um, and for some of our children, especially on the spectrum, and certainly my son, it, it's more extreme and more noticeable. So, as you said, they would be labeled right away, like "Whoa, that kid's yeah. bouncing off the walls." But if my son's not moving around, he's not able to attend. His, his mind cannot, literally cannot exactly. focus. But if he's moving exactly. around, he can hear everything that's going on. And he's listening and paying attention. And I know that now that he's more verbal because he'll respond halfway across the room while he's running. <laughs> and so exactly. I'll understand, okay, he knew what I was saying. He heard what I was saying. He was attending to what's happening and he was able to pay attention only by moving because his vestibular system is so, needs so exactly. much um, input or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so really, you know, the implication of that is that we have to be careful um, in intervening. There are no, um, we can't make generalizations. We, we really have to focus on individual differences um, in the children and the parents. And when we make the the recommendations, um, we, we really have to individualize them um, so that the, the, the prescription is going to be different for every single child. I think we have to be careful about sort of um, group regulatory activities.
0: Yeah, so I think to start off today, we, we've had three important things brought up that it's not a category, self-regulation, it's, it's more of a dimension, and it varies from child to child based on their physiology. And the other points that I'd like to get back to now, um, that you can't just look at the child, you have to look at the adult or care providers who are with the child, or one, one or more than one. Um, And the context. So if I am with my son at home, it's relatively quiet. He has a great relationship with his mom. We know each other very well, and everything feels very safe. It's very different if he's at school where there's lots of kids running around. There's noise. You can hear the band practicing in the music room down the hall. You can hear kids playing outside, running around. You can hear whatever else is going on. And there's distraction visually because there might be toys set up and different things happening. There's other kids going by. Oh, there's my friend so and so. There's my other friend running by. And so that context of that environment is very different. And he might be with people that he may or may not be super familiar with. So that all of that is going to totally affect his regulation and to say he's a very calm and alert such and such little boy is really dependent on those things because he can show a wide range of being dysregulated to being very regulated depending on who he's with and what he's doing in the context
1: yeah and and a couple of other variables that i think about one is that in different cultures there are different regulating strategies, and and we really have to take all of our culture into um, consideration and And the other thing that that I'm finding is extraordinarily important, and I, I what I've been seeing more and more of is um, kids being misdiagnosed because we really have to pay attention to the interoceptive system also there's There's stimulation going on inside children's adults' bodies. There are sensations that are um, going on all the time and and there are some children and some adults who don't have the awareness of these experiences inside their bodies and um there are strong implications for for regulation. For example, I have a little boy whose therapists have been working on regulation with him by using relaxation um, techniques uh, and by... um, Trying to help him see the train coming down the track so that they have been talking to him. Um, well, a number of therapists over the years have been talking to him about catching his angry feelings way down the road before he explodes. And they've been recommending deep breathing exercises when you feel the anger. Um, beginning at the very beginning, you're going to take three, five deep breaths. And in seeing this child and talking to this child, what we've learned together is I don't have the feeling of anger until the moment that I explode. And so I don't see a train coming down the track. And when they tell me to use this, these techniques, oh boy, do they sound wonderful but I can't use them because I don't have the feeling. It happens in a nanosecond, and I'm out of control. Um, I have other children who I'm seeing who will tell me um, that they do register feelings in their bodies. They don't have a clue what feeling they're registering. And so you talk to them about anger, okay, I'm going to look for those anger sensations in my body. Ooh, I feel all sorts of sensations. Is that anger? They don't know. So in talking about regulation, Daria, what, what we also have to think about is what's going on on the inside, what's going on on the outside.
0: Yeah, and and I uh, I dare say that many adults don't understand what's happening inside of us and may not be able to recognize uh, what we're feeling at certain times as well.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I had a a 14-year-old boy in my office with his mother and one thing that stood out with this kid was his honesty and I, I had a relationship with him and he was very honest and I was asking him questions And um, just about every question that I asked him, he said, I don't know. And I I said to him, let me see if I can make it a little, little easy for you. And I said, how do you know you're hungry? And there was something like a 30 second pause. And he said, I don't know. And I Turned to look to his mother, and her eyes were really wide. And she said, Oh, wow, now I understand it. If I didn't tell him when to eat, he probably wouldn't eat for a week. I have to tell him when to eat. And then I said, Well, we're going to try one more. How do you know you're tired? And he looked and he waited and he said, I don't know I just fall asleep so here's a kid who's 14 years old who doesn't register the sensation register the sensations in his body well how can you regulate if you don't have those inner experiences
0: yeah and and I wonder how do you develop those um, is it a matter of working through the functional emotional developmental capacities that we talk about in the the floor time, uh, the DIR model, or is it um, something you can learn?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a great question because it's one of the areas where I, I think I feel a little different than than the model. Um, and I, and the answer to the question is is that kids have to learn about their bodies first, and um, when they learn about their bodies then what we can do is we can attach those sensations that they have an awareness of because we've worked on it. Um, and then we can talk about emotions. And when we can talk about emotions, then we can talk about what to do about it. But I, I think if we just focus on the dynamics, the play, you know, the, the interactions um, without helping a child to become a, a really aware of um, sensations in their bodies and developing a vocabulary for that. Um, I I think with some kids, regardless of age, we're talking over their heads and they're really not able to understand it because they're not in tune with their insides.
0: Yeah, I wonder how um, that will play out even with my own son. I know that he won't eat or say he's hungry, um, and we just know because he starts to get really cranky and really yeah. impatient, and we say, oh, I think you're hungry, and and then he'll eat, you know, like crazy, and we'll say, oh, okay, and then he's fine again, and we'll, we'll realize that's what it was. Um, over the years, we've kind of figured that out, but he hasn't really ever told us yet, I'm yeah. hungry, I want to eat.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think on one of the podcasts, I told you the story about a little, I think it was a six-year-old boy who came barreling into my office and he said, Dr. G, my mother's always telling me to calm down. Will you calm down? Stop it, calm down. And my daddy comes home from work. And, calm down, calm down. Calm Yeah, <laughs> But, yep. but to, go, to go back to your, your original question, Daria, yeah, the, the answer is that we... We can teach many kids and we may not be able to teach all kids. I don't know. Um, But it's like learning to ride a bicycle. You learn about body sensations and you start with different body parts and you do activities with them and you develop a vocabulary with them and then you begin to do the higher level, whatever kind of therapy, verbal therapy, play therapy. Um, but I see so many kids who are, the, the parents are telling me, are, are doing better because they're gaining an awareness of inner sensations.
0: Yeah, that's got to be tricky. Um, so where does the piece about uh, mentalization that we discussed a little bit in the past podcast come into this presentation that that you were talking about is this um, part of this or
1: <laughs> yeah I, I I think that um, we're holding these things in mind these concepts in mind and um, the each of these different concepts may emerge you know um at a different point in a child's development but where it comes in is where, where as we learn about these things we're thinking about them all the time so the child that I'm looking at um you know what's the level that that child is functioning in terms of inner body awareness what what level in terms of the Um, that regulatory piece that, is it the physiological modulation? Is it sensory modulation? Is it control? Is it self-control? Is it self-regulation? Where is that child functioning on the mentalization level? Um, Is this child um, dominated by perceptions, for example, so that the two of us are walking down the hall towards each other and just as you and I are right together, I trip on the ground. And what I do is I say, it's your fault. You made me fall. And that child in terms of mentalization, um, the jargonish term is tele is at a teleological level of mentalization, meaning that the child's mentalization is dominated by perception um, then we move into what, what we call psychological equiv- or psychic equivalence which means I have a theory and if I have a theory you must know my theory because we all think alike and um, my theory is the reason why something happens um, and everybody must know that. So that's a second level of mentalization. So, with all of this, or pre-mentalization, what with all of this, we're really looking at the whole picture and the dynamics that are going on. Um, rather than saying, okay, we're going to work on the sensory piece, block out everything else. Um, we're just working on the sensory piece. You have to do it all together. You really have to have an understanding of how it works together.
0: Yeah, I do remember hearing Jake Greenspan say that there's no such thing as sensory work. So helping calm a child by putting them in a swing, it's not going to do anything. You need that engagement with the child while they're swinging. So get those interactions going while they're swinging or whatever activity you might be doing and um and i wonder do you, do you have to be at a developmental level where you're symbolically thinking before you can have the capacity for mentalization
1: yeah it, it, unless you <laughs> that's a great point point. unless you have the capacity to form pictures in your mind that's that's where the mentalization clicks in um, symbolic thinking
0: can I go on a tangent now and give you a really cute example of something my son said to me last week?
1: Yeah, I went on a tangent so now. <laughs> yeah, <Your turn. laughs>
0: So um, I hope I haven't said this in a past podcast because I would hate to be repeating myself. Um, I don't think I have, but it just happened. He um, he. Actually, I think I did say this in a, in a podcast that I did. But anyway, <laughs> he. Um, uh-huh he's been watching this show called PJ masks. It's about these little superheroes and one of them turns into an owl and flies in this owl glider into the sky and stuff. So just randomly one morning having breakfast and then finishing breakfast, he says to me, mama, can I go out? Or I don't know if he said, I want to, or can I go outside and practice my flying up into the clouds?
1: Exactly. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I was like, oh, that's so cute. Um, so um, someone was telling me that's the process of reality testing. Yeah. So I saw someone doing it, and I want to try and do it myself. Um, right. Would that be a level of some kind of symbolic thinking?
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, what, what I think about as you say that is – People, children in this case, um, being able to differentiate pretend and real, being able to differentiate, I have a feeling that I can practice flying, but I know that people can't fly, versus kids with serious. Um, mood disorders and and regulation disorders um, where they can 't differentiate or don't differentiate feelings from reality or thoughts or beliefs from reality. Um, one child, a number of years ago, a child who truly had pediatric bipolar disorder. Um Parents bought him a superhero costume for Halloween. And luckily, they caught him um on the ledge of his window before he flew out. Oh, my goodness. Because, because he thought when he put on the superhero costume that he became that superhero and he could fly. And and with with some of these kids um, who don't have that capacity, it it can be devastating. So you know, your your example is a great example um of a child, your son, you know, developing this capacity and being able to use it in a playful way, um, in a healthy way, healthy, playful way, versus the child who doesn't have those functions and um, parents aren't aware of these functions and go out and buy a superhero costume and then you don't know the outcome.
0: Right, right. So um, what part of, um, if you're thinking about the presentation that you did, what part would you like to focus on now? Um, I know we had talked about ways to be supportive in the regulatory process rather than focusing on behavior. Yeah. We've talked about this quite a bit in our past podcasts, but um, we're taking a little bit of a different spin on it today. Yeah. which um, which parts would you like to focus on next?
1: Yeah I, I think the the parent child, co-regulation piece is really important with parents, caregivers, professionals, um, thinking about when I see this behavior in front of me, uh, what I want to do is I want to watch, wait, and wonder, and be curious about it. And I don't want to rush in to um, f- focus on um, the particular task that's going on in the moment. But I, I see my child as being dysregulated. And on a very simple level, you know, my child's heart rate is increased. My child's blood pressure is increased. my The, the breathing is shallow and rapid. And what I'm going to focus on is supporting my child to slow the heart rate, decrease the blood pressure, help the child to breathe from his or her belly rather than from chest. And what I'm going to focus on is helping my child get re-regulated rather than to um, move in there and say, you have to listen to me and do this or do that, or, or this is the rule, or I'm going to teach you a lesson. Because <coughs> the interventions like that, um, what they do, number one, is they create what I call a reactivity dance. The child is reactive and the parent is watching it, and, and the parent experiences reactivity from the child increased reactivity. And so the parent moves in, in a way, either behaviorally, voice-wise actions um, that increases the child's reactivity, that increases the parent's reactivity, and they have to explode in order to re-regulate. Versus and when we get back to relationships being, I think, the most important thing in the world, um, we're going to work with each other and this is going to be a we project. And my role in the we project is to help you to calm down. Um, I'm going to be supportive, nurturing, um, and helpful, um, yeah, and what, what we see there is that that, get, that gets into developing secure attachments. It gets into developing synchrony between a child and a parent. It shows that the parent is attuned to the child. Um, it creates a space where a child feels safe and secure. And that's going to have long-term effects rather than teaching the child a lesson in the moment and, you know, being punitive um, so that child learns. And I've had so many parents um, who have said, well, that's the way my parents did it and it worked for me. So, of course, I'm going to do it and it's going to work for them and i sometimes i just scratch my head you know while i'm talking to the parent and i'll, I'll say there's one thing wrong with that theory you know there's probably many things but one thing that stands out to me is your child is not you and it worked for you because of reasons related to who you were but your child is not you and so those same mechanisms you really have to look closely at them because they're not going to work. So that that's the thing that I think needs to be focused on. That, that's a sort of, um, I wish I had a megaphone to go around um, because again, and I think I've said this on, on podcasts before, um, kids who have been horribly dysregulated I believe, can be regulated by support and scaffolding and help rather than um, by reactivity. And, and I, I recognize that I'm up on a soapbox, but I've seen it with kids who have been referred for um, very serious mood disorders and, disc- and being out of control.
0: Yeah, and you brought up a number of points that I want to point out to the listeners. We discussed in detail in the last podcast about the development of regulation. You brought up the the term um, synchrony, attunement, um, the scaffolding, all of those things. If listeners want to go back and look up Dr. Iric Levinsky at affectautism.com, the development of regulation, it was something like that was the title. Um, we went through a number of those points and I'll put links to that in the blog post with today's podcast as well. I wanted to say that all of what you say sounds wonderful, but in the moment it's so difficult to do. And I thought maybe we could go through a couple of examples. So one thing that tends to happen with my son when it gets to be later in the days, a little bit tired, um, he might be getting hungry for dinner, is he likes to dump and clear. (laughs) So um, we were having um, a meeting at the school, and I said, late in the day is not good, but that's the time that was available. So what did he start doing? He started taking every single drawer bin and dumping and dumping and dumping and dumping. So let me give you my... Idea having been trained at the advanced level of the floor time certificate, what I would think is something we could do, and you can tell me what else I could do because this happens at home a lot too. Um, it'll be bedtime, I don't want to go to bed, no, bedtime, and boom, every single book off of his bookshelf is all over the floor throws them behind the bed, throws them behind the dresser, which is impossible to get depending on where behind the bed he throws it. Um, So this this is a frequent dysregulated behavior of his to dump things out of bins and his entire huge bin of a million train toys and tracks all over the floor. (laughs) So this happens all the time. And it just happened to happen at school where – Art supplies, school supplies, toys, like, oh, my goodness. I was like, (laughs) and now what are we going to do? Like, say, clean that up, you know, like, he's totally dysregulated. Is he going to clean it up? If he might start put one in, what's he going to do? He's going to dump it again because he likes. um, So my perception is, A, he's had enough. He's tired. He's hungry. um, He's getting dysregulated. And he's activating his visual system. He loves to see and the cause and effect. He loves mm-hmm. to see that effect and he loves to see things flying. And, and he, he was a thrower as a kid, like everything, everywhere, throw, throw, throw. He still does, but not as much as he used to, but just that visual system, I think is so powerful for him. So, um, I can certainly say things like, Oh, You feel like, you feel like dumping everything on the floor. Oh, no. Oh, you know, and sort of empathize and sympathize with what he's going through. But at some point, we need boundaries as well. Because what if he were in a doctor's office and it was like medical supplies and needles or not, not that they have needles laying around, (laughs) but you know what I mean? Like maybe the stethoscope and things being dumped. There's a certain, like, like Greenspan would talk about, if the child's running into a street of traffic, you're not going to co-regulate. You're going to go grab them and pull them away. So exactly. what is the, um, you know, what, where's the limit of border setting and empathizing and using that as an example and then maybe thinking of other situations as well?
1: Yeah, here's where, I, here's where I'm going to get in trouble and, and, <laughs> and you're going to get in trouble um, be, because, if, again... <laughs> It's, it's different for everybody, number one. Um, there, there's a lot to say about this area. Um, there isn't the toolbox that um, we could recommend. Um, and, and in Atlanta, the, a lot of the teachers said, what do we do? What do we do? And just tell us what to do. And, and what I said to them is, if you function from the toolbox technique, by the time you think of the tool to use with that child, and I know how I'm going to handle the situation, the child shifts and is, is into something else. You know, the, the fact that, that we're fluid. Um, and so we, we can't think of tools. We, we have to think of us, number one, I think. And what we have to do is we have to feel comfortable, um, and, and regulated in order to, to work with the child. And, and I, I'll, I'll give you three very quick examples. One was a little boy who I happened to have in the office last Friday and he started dumping and I was feeling that if I stepped in to stop it, I was not only going to have the dumping, but I was going to have a tantrum on my hand. And I got into it with him. And I dumped over um, one of my toy bins. And we were both into it on the floor. And it was time to, to leave. And I, I said to him, whoa, what are we going to do? And he was laughing, and I said, "Um, you know what? I'm going to put the space toys away. Can you put those other toys away? And in that case, that worked out fine. Um, Another child who was in the waiting room and was trashing the waiting room, and I wanted to clean up, I, I said to him, ooh, Hold that box. You know that was it was the empty box that um, he had dumped the toys. And I said, I want to see if I can throw this toy into the box. And I threw the toy, and within a very short period of time, we were into a game with him and me and his mother. Turn taking, throwing the toys into the box. Um, so those two um, come to mind um, immediately, but I, I, I think the the last one was a very different example, and I got a lot of flack from teachers who I told this to, um, and this was before Stanley Greenspan. I didn't know anything about floor time, and floor time hadn't been invented. But I was um, a teacher in New York um, in a very difficult classroom. And I had a kid who kept falling out of his chair and it would ignite the class. And he fell out of his chair and I got down on the ground with him and and I said to him, how did you do that? You know, and. I said, can you teach me how to crawl? And this is with a a whole classroom around. And the kids were laughing. And I got the whole class into a game of crawling. And they got their sillies out. And now it was time to stop. And they were ready to stop. So those are three examples. And and your example of, of knowing that at this time of day, high probability this is going to happen, so what I need to do is I have to organize things before that time of day comes, so that there's a lot more control, you know, in, in the environment, um, but I, I don't think that there's one tool, you know, the what do you do, as much as can you feel comfortable being with a child, and involved in a child's regression and and feel that it's going to be okay. This is not the worst catastrophe in the world. It's dumped toys. And what can I do with this child who at this time of day, it's going to have to be playful rather than rigid um, to get the child on your side to work together. So I don't know if that's a very good answer, but uh, those are examples that come to mind.
0: Well, it's very helpful because what I take away from that are a few things. Number one, you joined the child in what they were doing, and that's number one in floor time. And number two, you were very playful and calm. So you were regulated. You weren't panicking going, oh my goodness, he's wrecking the place. What are we going to do? And feeling the the shame pressure of what are people going to think of, well, I would say, what are people going to think of me as a mother? I'm letting my kid trash the place. Instead, not worrying about that, being calm and regulated yourself, joining in the child, and then turning it into a playful situation. Uh, in the game way that you did Um, and in the classroom setting even you you weren't focused on that behavior you were focused on joining the child and getting that connection so hey how did you do that can you show me and being playful um, Mm -hmm. is a part of getting connected with the child and so I'm just thinking that you know I could have done a few of those things too and maybe my son would have just kept dumping um yeah. but yeah but maybe the boundary the boundary setting is hard and like you say it's going to be different for every child and me saying we don't throw toys i can tell right. you because i've been saying it for years it doesn't work <laughs> yeah. he knows he'll say don't throw the toy as he's throwing the toy he know he's yeah. he'll recite yeah. the rule never throw a toy <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's more about understanding his capacity in that minute that maybe he's not able to stop dumping and throwing the toys, but mm-hmm. in a calmer moment, he cognitively knows that yes. he can't, he shouldn't. Absolutely,
1: yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Maybe, yeah. And
0: maybe just reflecting and saying, oh, you had a really hard time remembering not to throw the toys. You, you couldn't stop your body. Um, that kind of thing may or may not work with kids if they're if their comprehension of that and if they're able to reflect. But um mm-hmm. I've done a bit of that with my son, like, oh, you got a hard time stopping yourself or whatever. Normalizing yeah. the situation a bit.
1: Yeah. I, I, yeah. Thank you, by the way. That that was helpful to me. Um th- there are two things that come to mind immediately. <clears throat> and and one is related to being present in the moment. So a child may have a good time with an adult playing with trains and a bad time with an adult because the adult's telling the child to put on his or her coat and the child doesn't want to. What being present means is in this moment I'm into the train activity oh, in this moment, I'm into the struggle with getting the code on activity. And what I don't think about is positive or negative. I think of this is what we're into now. And I have to be just as creative in the putting on the code activity as I have to do with the train activity. And it, it's just one activity is different from the other activity, but I, I can engage in it. And like you say, I can join in it. And and I, I think that that's, um, I, I think that that's a very important point.
0: So let's speculate how you would do the coat thing. How would you join in and say, like, ah, oh, I know. I don't want to put my coat on either. Like, um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, what I, I might do is I might say to a child, um, ooh, ooh, let me let me help you with the coat, and I might put the arm on his leg. Right. And so I'm, you you've done that with you know, being playful with kids. So I'm putting the child's leg through the arm and the child is starting to giggle. And now I'm feeling that the child is down-regulating a little bit and is more available to um, me helping out. Or what I might do, I don't know, is I, I might put my coat on inside out. And what, what, I, what I want to do is, is just help the child to shift. You know, you're talking about an executive function shifting, and some kids are just really inflexible. They can't do the shifting. And sometimes just taking the time for a little humor um can be helpful. And the parent's going to say to me, I don't have time to do this. We have to get to the grocery <laughs> store. You know, you know, would would you rather have a 40-minute tantrum and not go to the grocery store? Or maybe take 10 minutes and have a happy... Have a happy camper. Um, yeah, I, I just think about. I, I just think about those things. Um, there was something else. Uh, I'm losing it. So, um,
0: let's see if you remember while I respond to what you said, because I can think of this. This goes back to the point of every child's different. There's no toolbox. There's no rule book to follow. Um, if if I put. The coat on my son's leg, he would freak out. He wouldn't calm down. He would freak out. he would say, No, Mama, no, it doesn't go there. Yes, it goes here. <laughs> like, I, if it's not the way it's supposed to go, I'm going to hear about it.
1: <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm just free associating. It goes here. Show me. Oh, I didn't realize that. Show me. Yeah. Maybe that would work.
0: And I'll usually say, Oh, silly mama. Oh my goodness, silly right. mama! What am I thinking? Exactly. And then yes, that yes. usually calms him down because he'll go, <laughs> "Silly mama," and sort of repeat what I say.
1: Yeah, but but Daria, look at what you're doing in this moment. You know the, the the teaching tool that you're using for other adults. You know what what you're showing them is. You know, there's really another way to do it, and that again, there's not. A way, but what you can do is you can regulate your inner system by not reacting impulsively. And you could probably think of a few things that is going to help that child. And what we need to work on together as adults is maybe we can work together on your reactions to your child and why they don't work. We can be reflective about that. And so our work is not working with, you know, your child in the moment and how to do it. Our work is you get dysregulated very, very quickly when your child does these things and boy, we could work on that and that's, that's going to be helpful to you. Yeah.
0: And that's so important because uh, parents vary so much in the amount of patience they have when things like this come up. And I know for my husband and I, we have like the opposite set of things that make us impatient, which actually works out quite well because certain things I'm just, I cannot deal with this. I step aside and my husband has the patience of a saint. And then other times I see him like ready to explode and I'm like, run right in and co-regulate and it it, it's every parent is going to be able to deal with certain things differently and Mm -hmm. like you pointed out um in helping the child like let's focus on the environment and the adults too how much we can do with ourselves that ends up improving the situation for our child and And some parents maybe don't want to go there like, I'm tired. I am sick of it. I'm done. And in that case, I would say, well, the most important thing, which I heard Dr. Greenspan say a lot in the floor time radio shows and other things is we practice when we actually have time. So that's when you, you have the whole day to play. Let's practice being frustrated and putting on coats and being silly because you know what, I don't have to rush to the grocery store and I don't have to do this and I have an hour or 20 minutes or three hours and practice all of these things so your child gets practice too and you get practice getting annoyed, getting calm again. And yeah. then when it actually happens in the moment, you feel a little bit more coached or prepared to handle it, I think.
1: And, and that makes the most sense to me. I, you know, that, that's a great point because um, when parents um, are practicing some of these relaxation techniques with, with the kids, they're doing it at a calm time. And in the moment that child doesn't have access to calm. And so you can do wonderful training in calm moments, but we have to do the training in the real incident. And boy, is that an important principle. I, I I definitely agree with you. Yep.
0: Yeah, I think the other thing too is trying to t- tackle one thing at a time. So <clears throat> it can be overwhelming <coughs> for um, some parents to think about all these things at once. But if you think, okay, you know what, in the next week, I'm just going to think about this. And when I'm with my child and my child starts to um, do something and I notice my regulation, you know, I'm getting dysregulated and I'm getting anxious and upset or whatever. And I want to snap or I want to put a stop to it. What can I do to calm myself down? Just think about that for a week or a month and work on that. And then when that little thing changes, maybe the dynamic with your child changes. And then yeah. you focus on the next step of maybe how to co-regulate with your child once you figure out how to calm yourself down or whatever. Um, it's yeah. little baby steps over time is much better than
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally crash diets you. or whatever. <laughs> I totally agree with you. What I would add to it, Dara, is um, in the moments where I do have time to think, um, I, I would think about, you know, boy, you know, this morning I lost my patience. Um, I handled the problem this way. Where did that come from? Um, there's a history to how we all react to problems. You know, why does one parent do this and one parent do that? That's related to our history. And, um, one of the things that I think we, we need to do as adults is think about our histories. Um, yeah, I, I tell the story and I may have shared this in another podcast of a parent washing his son's mouth out with soap because he cursed and going to different therapists for techniques. What should I do? And um, the the therapist telling him what to do, but it not it, it didn't work. And in, in a session I the, the parent was talking about washing his mouth out his his son's mouth out with soap. And I, I said, I'm just curious, where'd you get that idea from? And there there was a pause and, and a tear and it came out. When he was a young child what his father did when he cursed, was he took him into his room, took him into the bathroom and he washed his mouth out with soap. And he was so enraged with his father for doing that. And it was being acted out, you know, however many years later with his son. So when we as adults do things with kids, why did we do that? Where where did that come from in our repertoire? I think it's an important thing to look at.
0: <clears throat> mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, we just do so many things without thinking about why. And, and we are in our own households. So we don't really see what goes on behind closed doors of all these other parents to see how they handle the situations. Like everything's sort of done in private. And so we don't really have, maybe if everybody were parenting in a big, large gym, you know, you hear about evacuations and emergencies where everybody lives in a football field for a week or something, Um, and you got to see the way other people parented and and the outcomes, it's very easy to see like, oh, I see, I see what they're doing. Oh, I don't know if I would have done that. Or, oh, I like the way that mother did that. I'm going to try that. And I think that's where the self-reflection piece of floor time practice comes into play because when we can videotape ourselves playing with our child, or even just have a videotape on, and you catch one of these tantrum moments or frustrating moments, and we see ourselves later when we're calm, we reflect, we watch the video just in in our own privacy or with a floor time coach and just say. This is what happened and, you know, reflect on it. This is how I felt when I did that. Oh, I didn't realize, like, look at when I did that. I see the look in my son's eyes or whatever. Exactly. Um, it's such a good way to do it. It's it's a lot of work and effort and parents don't, oh, I don't have time to do that. But it's just such a valuable part of really improving your lives and making it, making everyday life more peaceful when you start to do that self-reflection. And, and it really helps you modify how you are in all the moments and Mm. work on your own regulation, which in turn um, helps support the child's
1: regulation. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, sort of what it all gets back to here, we're going 180 degrees around It, it. for me, it all, all goes back to the, that relationships are the most important thing in the world and all of this other stuff that we're talking about um, is food for thought. But what I want to do is I want to have the best relationship I can with my family and with people who I relate to. And what I'm going to keep in mind is that that's what's important. How can I nurture the relationship?
0: which means the sense of safety, the sense of trust, being able to rest in that attachment, all of those things, um, what make a good relationship. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. This is wonderful. Is there anything else that you wanted to go over before we wrap up today?
1: Yeah, I remember, and this is quick. I remember what I didn't remember. Um, thinking about when when things happen and, you know, we have the explosions, what a lot of people tend to do is, and, and this happens every day, people coming to my office, um, we're going to go over what happened and what you could do differently next time. And what the kids tell me is, I finally calmed down and then my parents or my teacher Wants to talk about what I did, and I'm right back in that crummy mood. Thinking about something happens, and the child gets regulated. What I'm going to talk about is how did you do that? You are so calm now, and you did that all by yourself. How did you do it? And initially, what we get all the time is I don't know. But that plants the seed to be able to talk about strengths and the child to develop strengths to be able to use in different situations. So,
0: and to build the capacity to be able to self-regulate in the future as they get older. Because I Absolutely. hear all the time from people that um, whether it's adult autistic speaking about how they figured out ways to regulate in their Adolescence and adulthood, yeah. or whether it's parents telling me my child used to do this, but now if, if my it's child out. gets in a room that's busy and, and cluttered, they know they now have that flexibility because of floor time to leave the room, calm themselves down, and then tell me about it or go home or return in a calmer state.
1: Absolutely.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Glavinsky, for um, returning and going over this stuff. It's always wonderful to talk to you. And for the listeners, I'll I'll post the um, audio podcast, the video podcast, and a blog post about it with different links at affectautism.com. I can't wait to speak to you again in the future, Dr. Glavinsky.
1: Thank you for allowing me to have fun with you. Until next
0: time, here's to affecting autism through play.